All right. Um, baptism, we're going to do baptism, then we have confession, absolution, office of the keys, and then the sacrament of the altar is the last part, and then, of course, prayers and stuff. But uh, one of the things that's really important when it comes to the church, I mean, the church is an institution, right? We have institutions. I'm just doing some backstory here for you. Um, you know, an institution is something that's been set up, right, to do a particular job, usually, right? We talk a lot about government. It's just an institution people are actually aware of. I mean, today it's this, however many, 3,000 appointees and how many, hundred, how many million, three, is it three million employees of the federal government? That counts you. Maybe it's more than that. I think it's 30, actually. It's like 30 million employees. Yeah, so something like that. But it's only 3,000 appointees. So you don't need... Yeah, I don't even know. So it's a big number, but that, that's all considered an institution. Then there's institutions within the institution, right? But if you think of just like the federal government, just simply, we could do the state government. It doesn't really matter. It has a constitution. The constitution says here's, here's what, it's, what it is, here's how, what it's for, and then here's how it's constituted, like its officers and their duties and that kind of thing, right? So you have this establishing document that says here's what it is and here's what it's supposed to do and here's how it's going to do it, right? And then um, the problem is, of course, is if it grows and grows and grows, the Constitution ends up just being a piece of paper, basically, and the institution actually is turned into something quite different, you know, when it's, you know, bureaucracy is what we call that, right? Bureau after bureau after bureau with their policies and their rules and their executive orders and all this kind of stuff. And the, the problem with that is then you actually lose sight of like, well, why did we create this thing in the first place? And is it even doing what it's supposed to be doing? Or is it actually now doing something very, very different, right? You know, Postal Service would probably be better just as a purely private company in competition with, but the federal government said a long time ago, we have to make sure everybody has access to postal services. Hence the US Postal Service, yeah. Uh, you can thank Ben Franklin for that, I guess, but. Um, do they have to have access to everything? It's the same thing with tele. I mean, it's a service, utility, right? Telephone, internet, now is considered a public utility. Um, but that, uh, that's not always good. But anyway, you don't want to lose sight of what, what its purpose is, and that sometimes the bureaucracy gets so overwhelming that you don't ever, you forget what it is. And you need to get back to the brass tacks and say, okay, what is it? What has it been given to do, and how has it been given to do that? All right. Same thing with the church, of course. We talked about this, oh, I don't know how many lessons ago, probably towards the beginning. I went over Acts 2 with you, I think. And when did we do that? I don't know when we did that. Maybe with the third article. Um, but we'll just recap. Acts 2.42 tells you exactly what the church is. It's, it's right, at Pente right after Pentecost. So Pentecost has happened. We've had 3,000 souls baptized. We have the apostles, right? And um, so we have baptism. It con constitutes the church, creates the church. Um, and then it says that they dedicated themselves to the apostles' doctrine. So we call that the apostolic teaching, if you want, or doctrine. doesn't matter. The fellowship, all right? And that's a technical word, but we'll, I'll just write it as fellowship for the sake of argument. Um, the breaking of the bread, which is a youth... Shorthand for, and he took bread and he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, right, so that's the Lord's Supper. And to the prayers, all right, so that's all in, this is, these, these four parts are in Acts 2.42, right after Pentecost, it says here's what they, the church did, sorry, that's a two. And then it said that they also, um, they, took care, they looked to one another. There were offerings to support the church and then charity for, the, for those in need in their community and outside. So they gathered. And that, so then this really constitutes the church, these parts. It's all laid out right at the beginning. And so the, it's almost like the constitution of the, of the church. Within each of these parts, then there are also scriptures that pertain 
You know, there's other scriptures that define, okay, specifically though, what about baptism? What did Jesus say about baptism? Or uh, what does it mean that they, were, that they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, All right? Um, and those are what we, there's a Latin word, um, but it's just, I guess you could just call them the defining texts or something like that. They're called the proprium in Latin, but it doesn't matter. And the, the reason that's needed, and this is why I, I did all this lead in, because what sometimes people do is they mistakenly conflate the instructions, that's actually a good word, the instructions attached to baptism with the instructions attached to the Lord's Supper or the instructions Jesus gives for the prayers or um, the instructions given to the apostles and, and how to teach and preach, right? Or for the church and their fellowship, what does it mean to assemble together? Um, or even his instructions about offerings and, and charity, right? He has different teachings that pertain to each of those specifically. Um, and then, so then people get confused. So for example, some churches will say, well, because the sacraments, Lord's Supper, baptism, sometimes absolution is included there, since the Lord's Supper is, is only for those who've been instructed and absolved, then that means baptism is only for those who are instructed and absolved. So we shouldn't, like, baptize children. We should wait until they, they're mature enough to, to learn the faith and confess it themselves. Except the instructions given to the Lord's Supper that define and say that, it, that you're examined and absolved, that you receive instruction before you receive it, don't pertain to baptism. Baptism have their own text, all right? Um, and you could do the opposite. People have done the opposite. Um, this was a trend among classmates at seminary, and they, they ended up leaving the Lutheran confession because, a few of them, because they, uh, they, did, they made this mistake in the other direction. They said, well, since the scriptures don't prohibit baptism from infants, then he, it doesn't pro prohibit the Lord's Supper to be received by infants. Same problem, right? Now you're taking the texts that pertain to baptism and you're saying those also apply to the Lord's Supper. So you create what you do, what they're doing, in either case, is creating a category called the sacraments and saying that there's one set of instructions for all of them. But that's not how the scriptures work. Um, so you'll note, if you have your catechism, do you bring it? Yeah. You want to go to the sacrament of baptism. This is uh, 18 and 19 in this copy. Did you bring yours? Yeah, it should be the same page number. See, 18, 19. Yep, good. They just, they typeset it with new, new print. All right, so 18, 19. You'll note there's four parts to baptism from Luther, but the four parts are actually... Luther is saying, here are the four chief texts. Those things in bold. Here are the scriptures, right? And then, he, and then the instruction is from those scriptures. He does it the other direction. He says, what is baptism, right? Um, and then you, you say, it's not just plain water, but it's the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. But then he asks the question, which is that word of God, right? And so then you have the first text, um, at least in the catechism, regarding baptism which is Jesus sending his apostles to go and teach, baptize and teach the people, and that's how they're made disciples. All right? Yeah. Yeah, to make... They, it's really... It's an interesting word. It's actually disciple-making. So there's to make them and then No, it, it goes together. Yeah, that's another confusion that sometimes happens, um, especially in Greek, but this happens in English too. And doesn't mean... Always mean first and then this. Sometimes and means they go together. So baptizing and teaching goes together. Um, I have to do this with um, often uh, when people come and they're not like active members of the church or not even members at all. And they're like, well, I want to have my kid baptized. So then I, have, I actually have to teach them. This is what baptism is because they usually don't know or they have some vague idea. And then, but also say, and you recognize that now they're being brought into the church. And Jesus has commands for you especially as parents that they would continue to receive instruction from jesus that's what it means to be a disciple is to listen to him to follow him and li by listening so you're baptizing them into the church you're also then committing to bring them to church that's part of baptism according to matthew 28 verse 19 which you can see it's off to the side there christ our lord says in the last chapter of matthew therefore go he the, yeah, anytime there's a therefore, you probably are asking, what came before that? 
He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus. Therefore, I, therefore you go and make disciples. So he's conferring authority on them to go and make disciples in his name, right? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's pretty cool. Um, but this is important because I'm, uh, like the Roman church, they have holy water, which is water that's been set apart for a particular use. Um, but a lot of Roman Catholics, I think lay people especially, think of it as like being special water. It's like, well, no, it's been set apart for that use, and so we don't use it for other things. That doesn't mean it's different now. It's still just water, right? And the same thing with baptism. What water do we use? It doesn't matter, right? It's that the water then is set apart by the word of God for that particular use on that day. We tend to dispose of it reverently. We dump it outside, but, you know, on the ground. But anyway. That's not the point. The point isn't the water. It's the washing with the word, right? Okay. So that's, so you note there, rather than say, say other things about baptism, you say, what does God say about it, right? What's his command, right? What's the command that he gave? That's the first question. To go and make, to go and make disciples by baptizing them. It goes together. And then, Verse 20, which isn't listed here, of course, is, and teaching them to observe all things I commanded you. That's not listed. That's, that's why you're, that's the second part of it. But those two things go together. All right. So Luther just walks through and says, well then, all right, so we're supposed to baptize, Jesus said to. So then what's the benefit? I mean, what's the point, right? You can see how Luther's setting up like a constitution here for baptism. He's saying, here's what it is. Then why do we do it? What's the benefit? And he confesses it works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this And as the words and promises of God declare. Well, of course, that's a leading question. Which are these words and promises of God, right? Again, Scripture. Mark 16, 16. Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Does he ever say um, just a belief will you to be saved? Nope. He always says you're baptized. Yeah, that's a, it's an important point. Um, because what is belief in Jesus? It's not to say that there aren't people who are saved apart from baptism. I mean, the example people always love to use, to say, well, you don't need to be baptized because the thief on the cross. Jesus said, today, today you will be with me in paradise. So that, and we don't know if he was baptized, right? And there's no Christian baptism yet. Maybe he was baptized by John, maybe not, but he was a thief, so who knows? Probably not, right? That's probably his first, that was the first time he went to church and the last time because he's in the resurrection. Um, that's how I would put it, but like everything <laughs> today, especially, you know, cultural stuff, it's like the exceptions have to be the rule. All right, so there's people who have gender problems, right? That have confusion. Gender uh, dysmor dysmorphia, I think is what they call it, or whatever. You know, sometimes there's people born with, like, multiple sex organs. I mean, these things happen. It's pretty rare, you know. It's very rare. But, no, we have to make that the rule that that's, like, and if, you, if that didn't happen to you physically, then you should be able to chemically castrate yourself or physically or whatever, right? It's like, why are you making the exception the rule? We can accommodate people who are outside the norm, you know, the one in a hundred thousand or whatever it is, or one in a million, no problem, right? Um, but to flip it around, it's, it's just chaotic. It's just chaotic. Same thing happens with abortion um, and all the rhetoric today. It's like, oh, they banned abortion. Nobody can get abortions. It's like, that's not what happened, for one thing. And two, we always, I mean, even, even a Christian can acknowledge that it's not a good thing, but there are times where there's medical need. I'm... Like ectopic pregnancy is one that there's no state that's banned ectopic pregnancy, but you keep hearing that, well, if there's ectopic, then you won't be able to get an abortion. It's like, they don't even call it an abortion. Ectopic, that's when the egg fertilizes, or it uh, implants uh, in the fallopian tube rather than in the utero mall. Not a good place for a baby to, yeah. It just doesn't make it down the, the tube and implants in the wrong spot and has to be surgically removed. Is that human life? I would say yes, theologically. Practically speaking, yeah, it's probably hard to really make a case for people that it is. And never mind, we don't even call that abortion. So why are they saying that it's going to prohibit it? It's not even medically called abortion. It's not an abortion. Anyway, exception, 
But in order so that people who have ectopic pregnancies, which is very rare, but it happens, in order, then we have to allow all abortions all the way up to birth. You're like, how does that follow? Yeah. yeah. So this happens with baptism. Um, I gave you two examples where people say, well, is it possible to be saved apart from baptism? From Jesus' own except, except, uh, example, yeah. yeah. Uh, the thief on the cross is a notable one. Well, and that's the point, right? If Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and you believe that what he says is true, then why wouldn't you do what he says? Right, he says be baptized. And you say, okay, fine, I'll be baptized. That's why I want that, because I believe in you. I trust you, right? You see how that works? Yeah, I, looking for loopholes is always kind of a, I mean, it's just a normal thing, I suppose. Kids do it all the time with you, right? They're trying to sure. like, find a way out of doing the thing that you've told them to do. Right. Loopholes, exceptions, right? I mean, there, I, had a, I had somebody who was baptized, um, had, but had been committed to a mental institution for some, I think, almost 40 years at that point and, and managed to commit suicide. Yeah, 40 years. He had gone to Lutheran Day School. I think he had, like, he had some kind of mental break. But he had been baptized. He had gone to the school. And then he ended up, having, as an adult, being institutionalized. And then, um, then late in life, you know, you know, had another episode or whatever. I, I mean, I don't... There's not very many people institutionalized today, but he was severe enough that he still was. Anyway, he committed suicide. And so, you know, the parents were like, can you still do the baptism? Because the classic position was no. Luther actually shifted on that. Mm. Yeah, um, up, up until the Lutheran Reformation, you couldn't even be buried in a church cemetery. It was considered a sin of unbelief. It, to commit suicide was, was, to, was because you're denying the life God gave you. You're, um, and, and I would say, I, don't, I mean, I didn't know him. I hadn't visited him. Um, I don't even know if I was able to. Um, but on the other hand, I said he was baptized, right? And he confessed the faith. He was confirmed. Um, what his faith was at the moment of death, whether that was despair, whether that was mental illness, whether he was possessed. I mean, you know, was he denying Jesus or, you know, was it a mixture or confusion? I, I don't know. And so then in the funeral... You know, and Luther, did, I learned this example from Luther. You commend them to God and say, God, you figured out. You know, you made promises to him. Um, and because of, you know, his, his particular illness or possession, you know, he, he couldn't respond in the way that we would like him to respond. So we don't know in the way we might with somebody who confessed the faith up until their moment of death, where we can speak very confidently. But we can still commend him to God and say, you, you take care of this. Right, you made promises. Keep your promises, and that was it. Right, so um, he wasn't. It's the question to Mark sixteen. Right, did he deny his baptism? Did he not believe? I don't actually know. Now I have had occasion where somebody said, "All the, all this stuff you teach at church." I you know, I know I went to church there, and I know I was baptized. I don't believe any of that stuff anymore. And so I don't. I wouldn't do their funeral. <laughs> Right? Because they've told me, I don't believe it. Right? I'm mean, like, well, you're putting yourself in some pretty significant danger here because you're denying the one who saved you. So, right? What condemns? Unbelief. Right? Not, not being baptized. Yeah, and it could come back to faith. And that's why you, we'll get to that when we say get to the office of the keys. But that's why it's, it's necessary, out of actually love, to say to someone who is making that kind of you know, grave danger, mortal danger, right? They're putting their life at, at risk, their eternal life at, at risk for sure, and maybe even their life um, by denying Jesus, um, that there's risk. You know, that's, this is the risk you're putting yourself at, right? You're, and then we, we actually, we, no, we actualize that as a church. It's called excommunication. And say, you've set yourself outside the church. They usually don't want to come anyway, so it's fine, <laughs> right? They've already said, I don't believe. And they're like, well, then... I'd like to say it's rare. Um, it's, it's actually kind of a complicated issue. Um, it used to be more common that, that people were told 
that they, they, there's two levels basically. First, they said, okay, you need to abstain from the Lord's Supper because you've got unrepentant sin. We need to work through this. And then if they continued in that sin, they refused to repent, then they would be asked to leave the congregation. Because the, part of the problem, just like in a family, if you let any kind of in, institution, any kind of family or any kind of social group, you know, if there's a bad apple, in effect, it does. Or as Jesus says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So if you allow people to persist in their in open, rebellious sin within a Christian congregation, it tends to infect others to do the same. I have a friend who, um, coming out of COVID, he had a pretty significant family where um, there was infidelity. And then, and now he's, now he's up to five. five. Five divorces, basically. Yeah, in a small congregation our size. It just, because it was almost like, I mean, it's like an infection or a disease. And it's like, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. I'm unhappy. They were unhappy. I'm unhappy. Da, da, da. And he didn't give permission well, so to any of them. Yeah, it does. It happens that way. Right. Yeah. So if there's not, I mean, and it wasn't for lack of giving a stern warning and say, cut it out. And if you don't cut it out, there's going to, you know, we're going to ask you to leave because we can't have you be, you know. Um, it's this token acknowledged. I had a, my congregation, I had, this was very public. Everybody knew about it. And uh, I had a couple that were living. Um, they were both from, from another church, and they had an affair at the other church. But, but, so they couldn't continue at that church, so they came to my church before I was there. And the, and the interim guy just said, eh, I'm just going to look the other way, and then I'll let the new pastor take care of it. So I get there, and there's this couple that, like, um, he was a writer. His wife was uh, the secretary at the other church. Her husband, so the one he was having an affair with, was a teacher at the school at that church. Yeah, so it had already caused this destruction in that congregation. And then they were coming to my church, and they were living this way, and everybody in the congregation knew it, and nobody was saying anything about it. So their children were, of course, not being cared for. Their spouses that they had both that they were living in fidelity against, in, with infidelity against, right? Um, and there was no repentance, right? Uh, they left on their own because I told them to cut it out, or I would ask them to leave. And they, they were able to find another quote-unquote Christian church that was like, "It's okay, you guys love each other, and you don't love your spouses anymore. Just divorce and marry, and we'll be everything will be copacetic, right?" And like, uh, what does Jesus say? Yeah, what what God has joined together, let not man separate, right? I can't ever, as, as a Christian pastor, say someone, divorce is a good idea. You say that, um, they say sometimes it's necessary, but it's not ever good, right? I obviously, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, we make except, I mean, there are exceptions because of sin. I mean, risk of life certainly is one if it's domestic abuse. I wouldn't say at least separate. Right, and maybe that brings the spouse to repentance. Although it's kind of like once your dog bites you, you kind of you kind of can't live with the dog anymore because they'll do it again. It's a thing. Um, some people, and, and it all it all comes down to confession and absolution. If the spouses can confess their sin and absolve each other, then the marriage can go forward. Right, that restores the marriage. But that doesn't mean that they won't sin again either. But but that has to be the ground of it and. Um, in my experience, once it gets to the point that I hear about it, one, one of the two parties is no, isn't going to confess. And then you can't, they're not going to say they were sorry. They're not going to admit their failure. Do you see, do you see uh, trouble, trouble Oh, yeah, all the time. Oh, yeah. No, it's common. I mean, you should expect it. <laughs> I mean, you've got two sinners trying to live together. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't come to me until it's too late. Until they've really, they've done such damage, and they've sought no counsel, and they refuse, and then it's to the point where they won't even talk to each other, and it's like, all right, well, um, sometimes. Well, anyway, that's <laughs> the point was, baptism gives great benefits. So, and that's from the word of Jesus. So, it doesn't quote all the text, but it gives you at least Mark 16. So why not? Why wouldn't you be? Right, and it's for you and your children too, as uh, Peter says in Acts two. All right, so then we said, so we said what it is. We said what it does, or what it gives, and then it question. Well, how? Right. So we have what. I got to think of the interrogatory. Interrogatory. You know, what are the expressions? What it is, 
what it d gives, and then how, how can it do these things, right? Uh, and so then Luther says, certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things, right? So it's not just a washing with water, but it's more than that. Along with, this is new, the faith which trusts the word of God in the water. For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism, but with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit. As St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. So here's another scripture. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Um, Paul in Titus 3, he's echoing the language of John chapter 3. That's the story of Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He comes to Jesus by night, right? And um, uh, he says, what must I do to be saved? He says, uh, Jesus says, you must be born again or born from above. You could translate it either way. And he's like, well, what do you mean? It's like, how am I going to be born again? Do I go back into my mother's womb and I'm born a second time? Pharisee, he's such an, so clever, right? And he just, he's like, that's totally absurd is what he's saying. And Jesus said, no, you must be born again by water and the spirit to enter into the kingdom of God. So he's teaching Nicodemus about baptism. Uh, incidentally, Nicodemus shows up again, I think in John 11, um, and he defends Jesus kind of in a halfway way, but he, he kind of defends, basically tells the other Pharisees, just leave Jesus alone, he's fine. And then by the end of the gospel, after Jesus is dead, he helps um, Joseph of Arimathea prepare Jesus' body for burial, get him off the cross and bury him. Yeah. So at the beginning, doesn't believe anything. In the middle, he kind of defends Jesus. By the end, he's, he's willing to sacrifice everything that it means to be a Pharisee in order to, to care for the body of Jesus in his death. Well, it's a Sabbath, so he made himself impure, right? Uh, ritually impure. He, he forsakes that, and he ends up, and, and he's, Jesus is the guy that matters. I doesn't know. That's not recorded, but... But you can see this progress with Nicodemus, but it begins with Jesus saying you must be born again by water and the Spirit. Uh, it doesn't record, I, I'm, maybe he was baptized later, I don't know. I don't know, but that's not the point. The point is, is that that word of Jesus creates faith, and that's what's being talked about here. Uh, but, oh, the reason I mentioned John 3 is that Paul is echoing the language of John 3. He doesn't say he saved us through baptism. He says through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit new birth by the Holy Spirit. He's echoing John 3. Um, some uh, baptist -y people who don't baptize uh, people unless they ask for it and they're old, <laughs> older, past a certain age, usually eight, um, they say, well, this isn't talking about baptism. Washing, pouring, I don't know. It doesn't have anything to do with baptism. <laughs> it clearly does, right? <laughs> and if you look at the context, it's even, I think it's even stronger. But, it's talking about. Yeah. And then, um, going back to the first part. Yeah. Like, what is baptism? Uh huh. Says to baptize them. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, baptism. The word baptize is just baptizo in Greek just means to wash with water. Oh yeah. Right. And then, like a lot of words, they end up coming into a specific use in the church. Uh -huh. And then, so it has a technical definition in the church, but. Like if you were going to wash, we say we got to baptize the water, the dishes tonight, you know, after dinner. That's how the Greeks would say it. It's the same word. So what's the difference between the washing of the, the kid in the bathtub and what we call baptism? It's the word of God attached to it. Yeah, but baptizing does mean to wash with water. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The third part too, the other question, so he says, <laughs> okay no it's a good it's a good question i like it uh it's an english language problem <laughs> right i mean luther wrote it in german this happens with bible translation too though um might we when we hear the word might in english we hear it as may as in maybe as in possibly probably <laughs> yeah probably Sorry, night right right yeah and that that's not what's going on here i don't know what the grammatical tense would be. I have to think about it. 
And I don't remember the German either, so I'd have to go look it up. Um, might as in um, by, by God's doing. It, it, it's almost future tense, so that we will become. Oh, I see. Okay, now I can understand. Yeah, it's not the potential that it won't happen. Right. It's, it's the potential that it will happen. It happens by... So we have that opportunity over there. Yeah. No, he does it so that, you could translate it that way, having been justified by his grace, we would become, that's how we could translate it today, I suppose, we would become heirs. But apart from the baptism, we're not heirs of eternal life. So that's where the possibility is. But apart from baptism, yeah. Um, now baptism is, this is a whole other topic that's not really in the small catechism because it's probably not essential for children to know this right away, but we do learn this later, and I teach them this when they're preparing you know, to con- confess their faith in confirmation, um, is that bapti- for, for the apostles, um, the baptism is the equivalent of circumcision in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. Well, they expl- it explicitly says it in, the, in, in Paul, in Galatians, I can't remember where this is. It's not quoted here. Right, yeah. They were circumcised with the circumcision of the flesh, were circumcised uh, in, with the heart, and it's referring to baptism. Yeah, because uh, remember what circumcision was for. This is all in the background of this Titus 3. It was the marking of the males of Israel as uh, heirs of not, not the land of Israel or of the temple or of property or something like that. It marked them as heirs of the promise. Right? The, the promise made to Adam, the promise reiterated to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promise made to David. That promise, circumcision was in Moses. Uh, well, Moses forgot the promise. And it, ironically, his wife Zipporah, who was an Egyptian woman. <laughs> no, she was Midianite. Was she Midianite? Yeah, I think she was Midianite. Or was she the Egyptian? I can't remember. He spent a lot of time in Midian too. Um, she, was, she was not a Jew. And, but she's like, uh, why haven't we had, why aren't you circumcised and why aren't the boys circumcised? Because that's what your God said to do. And she has to tell him, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Um, so apparently by the time of Moses, you know, they were 400 years in Egypt. They had forgotten about circumcision. And then all the males were circumcised in the wilderness. It's not a story we usually read in church. Uh, it's a little uh, uncomfortable for the men, I suppose. But uh, it's... Yeah, so it's a mark of the promise, the promise of, of inheritance, but it's not the promised land, it's not the inheritance that it's a mark of, it's the promised Savior, because how does the Savior come? Yeah, the Son, the Son of Adam, the Son of David, right? And how does the Son come? Through procreation, yeah. So that's the part of your body that was marked. So they would always remember, this is where the offspring's coming from. It's a little, I know it's a little crude for us today because we're so, like we're talking about this, we're so modest. They understood it. No, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that that's, that's what's going on there. Um, so it's, they're always to remember, you know, this is what this part of my body is for, of course. They, already, they would know that. Um, but this is also where the promise has been attached. And so this is why people like Abraham is so, they're so, he's so distraught that they haven't had children because the promise is through the children. And every Hebrew woman especially later on of the tribe of Judah, for example. But they all bore children, hoping that, they, you know, that their son would be the, the savior. That's what um, Luther thinks, that's what Eve believed when she gave birth to Cain, the first son who killed his brother Abel. But she, yeah, when Cain is born, she says, uh, Luther translated the Hebrew as saying, I have gotten a man. I, no, not a man. I have gotten the man, the promised seed, the offspring. She thought that the savior, their savior was born right away. Turns out that Cain wasn't their savior. It's kind of the opposite of that <laughs> since he killed his brother. Um, so, yeah, so the New Testament teaches that um, this is why circumcision is not required for Christians. Um, I'm not even sure it's really necessary for medical reasons, but um, uh, no, because we have baptism. And what's different then is that like a lot of things that have its Old Testament precedent and then is replaced in the New Testament with something actually greater or even more impressive because baptism's for everybody, not just for the male children because the offspring has come. Jesus has come. 
And now, not only is it the, the male children who are inheritors, which is how it was in the Old Testament, the, male, you know, the eldest male got two shares of the inheritance and then all the other male children got one share and they divided it that way. Um, but the inheritance of heaven is equally for all, male and female, Jew and Greek, slave and free, right? There's no distinction because baptism's for all. Salvation is for all, baptism's for all. So there's that circumcision was for very specific people uh, and then like the wives and, chil- and children and uh, female children were carried along with that. They're part of those families, right? But it's specifically pointing towards the offspring, the son that is to come because sons were inheritors. So then in the New Testament, it refers to all of us through baptism as inheritors. And this is why I, it aggravates sometimes, but I don't think it aggravates uh, Maureen. Um, but some women might get aggravated by it. But it's like, no, we're all sons of God, is how I'll say it, like in a sermon. I'm like, well, no, it's sons and daughters. No, you don't want to be a daughter, not in the Bible sense. You want to be a son, because then you have the inheritance. And we're all, we all receive the inheritance as sons, because we're grafted onto the son, Jesus, in baptism. So the daughters No, they would have dowries and things, but... Um, but if you, if you died with no sons, no living heirs, your property was forfeit to like, your, to like cousins and it would go. And so this is why a woman who had no husband or no male children um, was left all alone often and would then resort to all sorts of other kinds of um, less savory occupations to try to make a living. Mm-hmm. Right, so then um, a lot of times like an elderly you know, a widow would have been taken into the household by her son. But you'll see this play out with like the widow at Nain in the New Testament. It's, it, it's quite explicit. There's, she, you know, she and all the mourners are coming out and it's the body of her only son. So that's why she's weeping like she is and why it's such a terrible thing. Because she, she has no other heir and she has no one to care for her then. Right? Same thing in the Old Testament with Elijah and um, the widow at Zarephath where her son is, she and her son are dying because of the famine. And uh, he preserves the bread so that they, or the flour so that they can and oil so that they can eat. And then her son, then her son dies, even after preserving the flour and oil, he dies. And then she's she's complete. She actually blames it all on God, rightly. And then uh, Elijah resurrects the the son, so that she has an heir to care for her in her old age. All right. Yeah. There's no welfare state. There's no nursing homes. There's not no social security. None of that. It. Yeah, Elijah. Elisha did too. Yeah, there's resurrections in the Old Testament. Yep. They're all like little resurrections compared to Jesus and the big resurrection. Hmm? Oh, yeah, well, you have that in Ezekiel. Yeah. And I, there's a question whether that's actual or visionary. It doesn't really matter. It's a resurrection either way. All right, and then there's, uh, is there anything else on that? I mean, there's a lot that we could talk about. I said that at the beginning. Um, justified by his grace, by grace's giving, by the way, it's a gift word. So baptism is a gift, which he gives. He pours out generously. He saved us. You notice who's the, who's the one doing these things? This is all God the Father through Jesus Christ our Savior, right? You see that? Who's the subject of the sentence? He saved us, right? Did we save ourselves? Is baptism our work? Is it something we do? Nope, it's given to us, right? And also, you see there the promise of the Holy Spirit, um, which is the Spirit is the, what Luther talked about earlier in the how can water do such great things. The Spirit works faith so that we believe the, the word of God given in the water. So which comes first? First, the word, baptism, or faith? It's, it's, a, it's actually not a good question because the answer is yes. <laughs> they all come together, right? So sometimes people will come and say, um, pastor, what's to prevent me from being baptized? Nothing. Let's be baptized, right? Um, sometimes people will say, why do I need to be baptized? No faith yet. They just, or maybe they have a little faith. They're not sure. Sometimes, um, like with infants, I have no idea if they believe or not. doesn't matter. God promised that he would give faith and he would work that through the water and the word. Yeah. So they all go together, and the order of things can vary depending on the person <laughs> and the situation. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have all these ritual things, but in the end, baptism is just water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's baptism. All the other stuff we do is really meant to teach 
If it's an older person to teach them as they're being baptized what's happening, to teach the parents, the sponsors, the congregation gets to hear again, this is what baptism is. We have this whole ritual. The ritual is all just, it's catechetical, it's teaching. How often is uh, Not as often as I'd like. Uh, how often do people have children? <laughs> right? How often do people convert and want to come to the church? Hmm? Yeah. Probably a couple a year. Um, yeah. My, my first congregation was so old and there were so few young people that like all the baptisms were my children. <laughs> Uh, which it's just kind of sad because you want to hear those words again, right? Yeah, right. And you want, uh, and there's something about witnessing the thing happening to someone else sure. that reminds you of what was done for you, especially if you're an infant and you don't remember it. Like, I don't remember it. I wasn't there, right? Um, all right, so we said what is what it is, what does it do, how, how does it do that, and then um, what does this mean is also ultimately the last question. What does it indicate? What does it show? All right? It indicates that the old Adam in us should, that it might. <laughs> I know, it's the same word. Uh, should by daily contrition and repentance, so we'll talk about that, be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. All right, and then again, where is this written? So Luther's just reflecting on what Paul writes in Romans 6, which is Romans 5 through 7 as baptism. Well, actually, you can go back to the beginning of the book. It leads confession of sin. You have, he has at the beginning, chapters 1 through 3, which leads us to then, well, how are we going to be saved? Through the washing of rebirth and renewal, right? Um, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. This is really kind of a profound idea. Yeah. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. All right, so Paul is teaching, uh, and again, he's really, Paul, Paul is reflecting on what, what Nicodemus said, you know, asked, well, how am I going to be born again? Well, how are you going to be born again? You actually have to die first. And then you'll be born again. You'll get new life, right? So death and resurrection, death, rebirth, that kind of idea. Um, so we were buried with him through baptism to death. So when you go down into the waters, um, it's a kind of death. That's why I like, I like immersion baptism. We don't have a font that can do that. I would off, I'd, I'd like to offer it to people, but our font doesn't do it. It's okay. You don't have to. You can go either way. It's not the amount of water that matters. But because of this text in particular, you know, there's something powerfully evocative about being submerged under the water, yeah. literally being buried, drowning and dying with all sins and evil yeah, desires. Uh, you know, earth, earth, water, earth. Yeah, so the, uh, a couple of, you know, some of our newer, newer churches or newly renovated churches have done larger fonts. Actually, St. Paul's Falls has one that you can get down into. Yeah, because it's pretty new construction. Yeah, well, it's kind of treacherous. It has like a moat, and you know, it could, I don't know how they keep the kids from falling into the moat, because it's kind of modern thing. It's not. Um, but sometimes it's just, it's just big enough, and it has steps, and you go down into it. I went to a, uh, a relative who was Lutheran and then became a Baptist of some sort. Uh, Baptist baptized are just adults. Um, but I went to the funeral. This was in in the Hocking Hills, Ohio. So it's, they these are hillbillies. They do it as adults, not as children. Um, they had a font. It was actually a hot tub up on the stage. Oh. I was like, hey, that works for me. I mean, you get the water circulating. You don't get stagnant water. Because they, they only do immersion. They only go under. Okay. <laughs> so they had a hot tub for it. It was like, eh, that works for me. Uh, problem is they don't actually believe that baptism, they believe that baptism is their work and that it's, it's a sign of their faith. Whereas we would flip it the other way. Baptism is God's work, and it gives you faith. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so for them, because it's our work, you have to do everything just right. And if you don't do it just right, then it doesn't, it's not effective. They have the same problem with the Lord's Supper, by the way. If they don't follow the instructions just right, then it won't be what, it's, what God said it is. And we go the other way around and say, actually, God says, here's what it is. The amount of water and when, what time of day it is, and even if it's in church or whatever, none of that is commanded by God. 
what's the essential thing? The words in the water, right? Whether it's in the hospital or, you know, at the home or by the bedside at death or whatever, right? Somebody dying, at, you know, we can baptize you right there. Um, I have. It seems pretty, pretty rare today. Maybe it's because neonatal care is very good and... Um, but I, you know, every parish I've served has had uh, a grandmother that had baptized a child in emergency, which um, we permit. I mean, it's not ideal, but uh, all of those children uh, later then were brought before the congregation and their baptism was acknowledged before the congregation for the sake of doubt and whatnot. But the bat- we don't do it again. Why do it again? We were baptized, right? So once and done. But what Luther rightly brings in here from Romans is that baptism isn't, isn't a once and done. I mean, it is once and done in a sense you don't, you're not baptized again. But it has, it's what we call perfect tense grammatically. It's something that's done but then has ongoing effect. All right. So now that you're baptized, this is a change of identity. It changes who you are. Um, it's because God has given you promises attached to that baptism. He's promised you the Holy Spirit who works with contrition, which is sorrow over sin and repentance, that is to return to God for forgiveness. He works that daily in you because you're baptized. The Spirit is given in baptism. Uh, the Spirit is also given through the Word. That's why baptism and God's Word and faith is kind of, you can't distinguish it. Sometimes somebody hears preaching and then they want to be baptized, so the Spirit worked that way. Sometimes infant, right? They're baptized and it's led to a life um, in God's word. But uh, it has ongoing effect. So uh, daily is what Luther says. And some of that's because, you know, he grew up in a monastic tradition. Right? He was a monk from a young age. I think you, when did you become a monk? 16 or 17, something like that. So he learned the life of a Christian um, is one of daily repentance and forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins. He learned that as a monk, praying the Psalms, praying that. And then he brought that into the home and into the, the whole church. He said, this doesn't actually belong in the monasteries. It belongs everywhere. It belongs in everyone's home. Um, and so then in the catechism, when we get to prayers, which we've talked about before, um, you know, the morning prayer says, in the morning when you wait, get up, make the sign of the Holy Cross and say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So you make the sign of the Holy Cross and you, and you say the name that was put on you in baptism. Do you actually start the day with baptism? Same thing at the end of the day. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not just a recitation. It's act, same thing when we say it in church. It's that we begin divine service in the name, which is not only the second commandment, that we use God's name properly, not only the... Uh, what was the other parts? We've had God's name in a couple places, right? Um, oh, in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, right? First petition. Um, second commandment, first petition, and was there another time we talked about Lord's Prayer? Talked about it already? Uh, maybe the first article of the creed. So, but it's, but it's actually baptism. We're starting with baptism. And the very first thing we do in church after we remember our name is we confess our sins to be forgiven, just as we were in baptism. So the confession of sins, which we'll talk about when we get to, is nothing other than actually saying I'm baptized. And I believe it. Right? But we go through the, that ritual of saying I confess and I want to be forgiven. And then you hear the words of forgiveness again applied to you. Not because it, wasn't, it didn't happen at baptism. It's because you don't believe it. <laughs> and so again, you need to hear those words again. Um, and I would even argue daily. Um, so, um, you notice how it says, you know, if we were buried and then we rose with Christ, Luther says each day is that way. In the morning we rise with Christ and the evening we actually die with him again. So he looks at sleep as kind of a, well, Jesus does too. He refers to death as sleeping. So think about the, I don't know what prayers you were taught for a nighttime. This isn't a catechism prayer, but it was one that I learned. Um, now I lay me down to sleep. You remember that one? Yeah, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And I mean, it's really kind of a terrible prayer in a way. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take, right? So there, I mean, that prayer rightly recognizes that there's always that potential of death, right? 
and in the evening, our sleep is like, a, is, a, is like a little death in a way, except we rise again in the morning. Of course, you see the same pattern of death and resurrection in the seasons, right? Right now we're in the growing season. We'll come up to the fall. Leaves will fall. The trees will grow bare. Things will die. They'll go into the ground. Then they'll sprout up again in the, in the spring. You know, the winter wheat will sprout, and then the, then the flowers and the trees, and, and there'll be new life again, and then it'll die again, and then, you know? And so we have that each day. We have that in the seasons. Um, and then so the New Testament, especially Paul there, he sees that, those as, as pictures of the death and resurrection we have in Jesus. And so we have these other ways of seeing that the whole story of the Bible is actually one of dying and rising with Jesus. Like mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're a new person through confession and absolution. You're a new person through your baptism. You're a new person... Um, I would say even when you, no one comes to divine service believing, they all come in some rebellion, unbelief, and then they hear and they confess and then they're, they're forgiven, repented and forgiven, right? And so you're converted again to faith even each time you come to church. There's that, there, maybe it's not as dramatic as like fully dying, but you recognize there's some part of me that doesn't belong and needs to die, right? Something I believe, something that I think something that I've done right so that's confessed or it's exposed maybe through preaching or teaching and absolved forgiven and put to death again that's why the last word in church in our practice is not um, go and do more <laughs> the last word you hear is go in peace right and some of our churches do this go in peace serve the Lord which is not good no like serving the Lord's fine but but don't I, if I'm going to tell you to do something, now you're thinking, mm, I don't really want to serve the Lord. And then you're back to your sin again. Oh, okay. <laughs> the last thing is go, depart in peace. Right? Michael Heider uses this phrase spiritual warfare. I think so. Right. 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 And to this point, I think this is really key because today we have, we still have maybe even more than we, we had, but it was very popular saying about 10 years ago, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious, meaning I, I, have, I, have my religious, I have my spiritual practices, but I'm not a part of an institutional church. Problem is, is as I pointed out to you from Acts, right, and front, through the scripture, or like with baptism, it's like, well, how are you going to deny the, the spiritual gift of baptism when, the, when it's the teaching of the apostles and Jesus himself? And the pattern set up in the Old Testament. So to say you're spiritual but not religious, meaning I'm not going to do these things that the Lord has established. Right, and I, so I think what ends up happening, if you want to use the terms of spiritual warfare, is you're, you're actually easy prey and you're easily manipulated. Right. And so what, what we're seeing today, in my opinion, um, culturally, is we're seeing you know, strong cult, cultic line, uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. Like people... Um, they believe things and they don't even recognize and they'll say things and you don't even, they can't even recognize what they're saying is completely absurd. I, I've seen, I saw, seen this done multiple times at demonstrations where, um, you know, anti-abortion, excuse me, pro-abortion kind of things, anti-Supreme um, Court decision, Dodd. And so, right, well, right, some of them visually, right, with the bleeding, oh, it's like, you know, that's terrible. But no, this was just, I saw one yesterday where it's just two women and they're like, no, you know, I think I should have the freedom to do with my body what I think is right, right? Or what I think is best. And there's going to be times where, you know, abortion might be something I need to do and da, 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 da. Right? And then the person's like, okay, uh, just say for the, for the moment that I agree with you. Um, do you think you should um, have to get a COVID vaccine? And they're like, well, of course I have to get a COVID vaccine because that's the rules. That's the, like... Why, what happened to your body and what you do with your body is important, or even your body's a temple, if you want to quote the Bible. Right? What happened to that? I mean, I don't believe the life in your womb is your body, but, and they, a lot of them don't either. They say it's a parasite, but <laughs> that's a whole other story. But the, the lack of logic just shows the amount of, there's mystery in things. But yeah, it's, it's indoctrination. And how, yep, yep, right. Right. Well, how does that happen? My argument would be they've rejected the means by which the Lord has actually established 
not only to bring you to faith, but to keep you in the faith, right? And so, um, you know, and, and it's not just, the pro- my problem is as a pastor is, of course, I mean, there's a certain amount of job security for me saying that because these are the things I've been given to do as well. So I want people to take advantage of these because it's my job, right? And I want to be able to do my job. Okay, fair enough. Except I believe the job has been given to me by the Lord, right? And, and hopefully you, by, by just reading the scriptures, would say, no, that's actually what we've been given to do together as a Christian. This is what actually makes a Christian church. But I will have people that will say, no, the Christian church is about charity. It's about doing acts of kindness and love for other people. Like, okay, how about, how about baptism, though? Well, nah, this is something nice that we do together. I'm like, really? You know what Jesus says about that. Or how about, how about um, you know, the Lord's Supper, right? When I first came here, the Lord's Supper was infrequent. It was a couple times a month. And, you know, I just asked the question, why? Well, that's just how we do things. Well, why? What does Jesus say about it? He says often, doesn't he? Yeah, he says often. Right. And why, so why did you not have the Lord's Supper each week? And the, they're like, oh, we don't know anymore. We don't remember. I'm like, okay, let me tell you your history. <laughs> there was a long period of time where you were sharing pastors and you didn't have a pastor every Sunday. Sundays, you didn't have a pastor. One of your elders would, would pray matins, right? The prayer service, right? And with no Lord's Supper. And it just became the standard. Even when you got a full-time pastor, you know, it took a couple. But once you got one that was here all the time, you kept doing it. Because it's like, ah, well, you know, you have excuses. All right. So uh, what else? Yeah, so there's denial or praying together. Fellowship is that we join together, that we come together for these things. Right? Well, there's people who say, well, I, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to be a part of a church. Well, you have to actually say to Jesus then, you're a liar. And, my, and so my point to your spiritual warfare point is that um, you can't do spiritual warfare apart from baptism. And in our baptismal rite, I, I don't know if you've been here for this, but um, I use the old rite. There's two options in our hymnal. I use the older of the two, which actually has an exorcism at the beginning. Oh, really? Yeah. Out of unclean spirit, make room for the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Out unclean spirit and make room for the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, that's from Luther. But a lot of people don't believe that anymore. But it's like, no, your children, this is why you bring your child to baptism. Because the Bible says that they're under the captivity of the devil until Christ claims them as their own. So, okay. Yeah. Right. So we take that seriously. Right. Um, Spiritual warfare, apostles teaching. Right. Think about how Jesus defeats, in a sense, defeats the devil in the wilderness. It's with the word of God. Well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to defeat the demonic lies if you don't even know what the word of God is? Hence, study of God's word. Regular study, consistent. Fellowship, you can't do it alone. Even Jesus, when he sends out um, his apostles, he sends them out two by two. You're always with someone else. Never doing it alone. That's why I don't actually think churches should have one pastor. I think churches should have two pastors. People don't agree with me on that because it's too expensive. I'm like, well, well, I mean, like here, we would like, one would be, you know, dedicated to the school, but there would, there would always be two. Mm-hmm. Even for a smaller church. And I think the reason for that is, from my opinion anyway, is that just having done this now for 12 years, um, I have to actively, like, spend a significant amount of time, inconveniently so, talking to other pastors, bouncing ideas off of them, trying to build friendships with them to... I need somebody to tell me when I'm an idiot, right? And they, and they, but they generally won't because they're worried. And then I can't talk to one local because they, because we're territorial and blah, blah, blah. Like they might take my member and I can't be honest with them because then they'll know things. It's so stupid. All right. Anyway, uh, Lord's Supper, right? Forgiveness of sins, life and salvation promised in these words in his body and blood. Seems like that would have some import for um, spiritual warfare to actually Receive Jesus and his forgiveness. Um, prayers, of course, um, is another. That's actually a kind of warfare. You see this especially in the Psalms, in the prayers of the Psalms, that rather than keep like your laments to yourself, you pray them to God and you, make, and you have him answer it. So it's an act. Rather than keeping them to yourself, which is unbelief, in faith you give them to God and you say, these are your problem now. Right? If you keep them to yourself, then you make, you're easy prey for the devil because you're also easy prey for temptation. The things that you whine and complain about and all those sort of things. Um, offerings, right? Love of money is one of the greatest demonic uh, assaults, of course. 
love of stuff, even life, even um, more than, and then charity, um, living for oneself and not for others. What? Well, think about what Jesus says. He says, uh, you know, he, he who desires to come after me uh, must take up his cross and follow me, right? And right before that, he says, um, I think in Luke, it's different in different gospels, but he says, uh, whoever desires to come after me must um, uh, forsake father and mother, husband or wife, children, right? And even his own life. So, for the kingdom. Correct. There's that too. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Right. Um, what he's talking about how, is how we can make idols even out of ourselves, but also of the things we, and people we love. This happens more often than you think. We're talking about this with marriage, but it happens with parents and children, is that parents, because they love their children, refuse to, to correct them. Right? Because they don't want to offend them. I'm talking especially at grown children. Right? Because it's like, well, you know, they're adults now. Yeah, but they're acting like children. They're still your child, and they're acting like children. So tell them to cut it out. And parents won't do it. Grandparents won't do it. They'd rather have the ch child continue in sin and just look the other way. Right? You have this with, you know, I have, I have, we have people in the church. This is all public knowledge, so I'm not saying anything that people don't know. It's pretty, actually kind of common today. It's like the parents or the grandparents will buy the house for the people, for the granddaughter or grandson so that they can move in with their with their lover and like, and they're like, oh, we're going to get married someday. And it's like, he, the horse, horse in the cart, right? Chicken in the egg. It's like, okay, you're, you are even buying them or putting down, giving them down payment for a mortgage so that they can have a place to live, but you're not actually telling them to get married first? Like, what happened to you? What, hap what happened to the, right? But it's because, oh, because that's the way of things today, right? So we, if we say something, you know, Right. It's the same thing with the homosexual stuff, right? It's like, well, we can't tell them that it's wrong. We actually have to support them because it, that would be, we, we can't, how else are we going to love them? Yeah, that's right. I know. I know. I know. Well, I mean, I talked about this with a friend of mine and it's like, my, he said, my wife wants me to tell her, you know, to work on her belly fat. I was like, you have a healthy relationship. This is right. Well, I mean, it's like, yeah, because it's hard work, you know. You, they they want you well, to tell okay. them to stop. No, they want it, They know it's. They probably know, and they probably want you to to not only tell them to stop, but to help them. Mm -hmm. But they're probably too ashamed to ask. I think that's sometimes the case. Um, but the, my pro the problem is, because you're talking about spiritual warfare, by not saying anything, by not directing them back to the life of the church, they end up actually moving farther away. Right? Because you've basically said to them, yeah, I know I taught you the Ten Commandments when you were a kid, but I, they don't really apply to you once you're an adult. It was just, a, yeah, it was, it, well, it was just a suggestion. It was a life, you know, life lesson or something. So, yeah, to your spiritual warfare thing, baptism is a central part of that, but I would suggest it's the whole life of the church is directed spe specifically toward that. And the reason I brought all that up, full circle, um, there's the danger of the, the spiritual people of trying to do spiritual warfare, but with their own resources and with things that God hasn't actually established. You'll see this, like, you know, like actualizing your... Yeah, it's sometimes magic or some of the meditative stuff. Um, you know, find your, find your uh, mantra and, and get into a space. Or um, Sometimes people treat like physical fitness as actually a kind of warfare, spiritual warfare, you know. And, and maybe actually overeating could be <laughs> demonic possession, I suppose. But um, I think it's, it's generally just comes from your own heart and your own greed. But, the, um, but that's, those aren't the means that God has appointed for that. So that goes all the way back to what we talked about at the beginning is like when we want to talk about baptism, we talk about it according to what God has said, right? And then that ends up answering all the objections, you know, like, well, why should children be baptized? Well, because that, that's what St. Peter said at Pentecost, this gift is for you and for your children, for those afar off, right? And then Peter's own example, he baptized the jailer and his whole family, right? Um, 
And there's never an exclusion. It never speaks of like, well, only when they have reach an age of accountability or something like that. It's what ends up, what's usually happening there is you have some logical fallacies happening or some application of reason to what, to try to undermine what God has actually said, right? And our reason, as Luther says, is held captive to the word of God. So our reason can't contradict, even if it makes sense, it can't contradict what Jesus has said. It's no longer faithfulness. And especially with something like baptism, but also with the Lord's Supper in particular, and I would say with the church in general, um, you know, there's a degree of like, we don't always understand exactly why God set it up the way he did. But that doesn't mean it's not true. It just means we don't understand, right? And it doesn't, or it doesn't seem reasonable to us. So that's a lot on baptism. But it's a big, it's a big, it's really a big part of our life together as Lutherans in particular, because we, I speak of baptism often, I'll often even just direct you to the font as, you know, as an icon of what, what you received in, in baptism. Uh, and like I said, we begin our services, we begin our prayers with baptism. So, in the name, right? All right, good. We're going to end there. It's time. Sorry, I went a little bit long. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.